We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just again want to thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for the privilege of being able to open up your word, Lord. And God, we know that, um, Lord, we'll just start... Our fleshy eyes, God, we're, we're not going to be able to see, Lord, the, the, the jewel and the, and the gold that you have for us through your word. And so I pray that you would help us to, to, to see deeper into your word and that you would open up the eyes of our hearts, Lord, and that you, again, Lord, would be the teacher of our souls. Lord, bless us this night. We continue to lift up the, the, the guys in Cambodia and everyone that is over there, the Schmitz family, Lord. And again, Lord, thank you for just the midweek where we can... Um, Lord, come and, and, and hear from you and worship you and, and be in fellowship with each other, Lord. We thank you, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Second Kings chapter 10. Um, last week we left off looking at the, at the reign of, of King uh, Jehu. In, uh, in chapter 9, we learned that Jehu was a, a commander, right? Manny taught that he was a commander of the Israeli army, uh, the northern uh, kingdom, um, who, who was anointed who was anointed by God through Elisha, through a prophet that Elijah commissioned um, to be king. Uh, the problem was that there was already a king. That's usually a problem, huh? Uh, to be anointed king when there's already a king. So he was made king, but he was made king with a certain purpose. He had a, a calling on his reign, and that was to fulfill the, the prophetic word of God given through the prophet Elijah. And that would be that judgment would be served upon the house of, of Ahab. Second Kings 9.7 reads, You shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and that all the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. And so that's exactly what he did. Now, we were talking in the back that he was commissioned, uh, and then he just took the reins with zeal. Uh, Jehu carried out God's orders, cleaning out the house. And we're going to read that. Boy, did he do that. Um, there's an expression that I'm sure you've heard that, that he wiped the floor clean with him. Well, that, that would fit here in what Jehu does to the house of Ahab. He started off by killing uh, Joram, the king of Israel, right, who was the king that was in reign. Second um, Kings 9.24 says, Now Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jehoraham, which is another name for Joram, between his arms, and the arrow came out of his heart, and he sank down in his chariot. And then he went to the king of, of, of Judah, Ahaziah, which happened to be visiting uh, the king of the northern tribe, and so he killed him too. And then he went after Jezebel. Uh, if you remember, that was a, a real violent death. All right? If you were here last week, Manny taught on how Jezebel was waiting for, for uh, Jehu, um, up on the window putting on makeup and um, you know two of the eunuchs pushed her out of the window and so she fell face flat on the floor and then after that you know the horses trampled her and then to top it off the dogs ate her and so that was a real real violent death in today's chapter we kind of continue that that massacre we, we continue to look at the massacre of of Ahab's household. And, you know, when I look at, at, at the Old Testament, and I don't know if, if you feel the same way, but sometimes when I look at the Old Testament, I, I think of like, wow, Lord, there's a lot of killing 
You know, there's a lot of violence here. And I, and I think a lot of people have, have an issue with that. You know, they, they, they can't comprehend how a, how a loving, how a merciful and gracious God would commit, commission such ruthlessness. How, how, do you, how do you weigh that, you know? But the, the truth is that, that we forget that not only is he a loving and merciful and gracious God, but that he's a holy God. He's a holy God with a lot, a lot of patience. But, but it, there comes an end to, to that patience. And so I read a poem the other day written in the 1800s by a, a, a theologian named Joseph Addison Alexander. And the poem touches on the line between God's grace, God's patience, and then God's wrath. Um, it's, it's a long poem, so I'm not going to read it all to you. I have it. I printed it in case you might want it. I'm only going to read the, the opening lines, but I thought I, I'd share it with you because what it says is, is so true. The opening line says, There's a time we know not when, a place we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. And so that's the $60 million question, huh? Where is that line? Where, where, where is that line where God says enough? Where God lets, just takes his hand off of you? For, for us as Christians, if we're in Christ, our sin, past, present, and future, it's been paid for. It, it's done. It's put away. God is taking care of it. Um, but we can't forget that it, that it, that it took a, a real brutal scene for our sins to be paid, right? God's wrath came down, not on us, on his son. We could never forget that. I believe with all my heart that, that if Ahab and, and Jezebel would have repented, that, that God would have shown them mercy, just as he did with, with the people of Nineveh. But, but they didn't. And so God brought justice, and, and that's kind of where we begin reading uh, here in chapter 10, verse 1. It says, verses 1 through 3, Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, and Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders, and to those who reared Ahab's sons, saying, Now as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also, and weapons, verse 3, Choose the best qualified of your master's sons, set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. Now, when I first read that, I thought Ahab had 70 sons. Like, wow, man, you know, 70 sons. That's, that's a lot of kids, right? That's a lot of kids. But then I read of a guy named Ishmael Sharif, a, a Moroccan uh, ruler who reigned from 1672 to about 1727. And this guy fathered 800 children. And so when you think of 70 and 800, 70 doesn't sound like, like that, that much. Judges 8.30 tells us that Gideon had 70, 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. So it wasn't something that was unnatural, especially for kings. They had a, a lot of wives. They had a lot of mistresses. They had a lot of kids. Here we're told that more likely a lot of them were his sons, but some of them were his grandsons and, and probably even great-grandsons of Ahab. And at this point, Jehu um, ha- has taken reign of his kingdom, right? He got rid of the king. He got rid of Jezebel. But now, since he has the reign, since he has the kingdom, now he has to, to, to continue that commission that God gave him, the, the prophetic word of God, which is to get rid of all of Ahab's household. Um, 
I think another reason that Jehub started doing this, really, and we're going to see this pattern um, as we go along, was that he, he had gotten the job, right? He had gotten the job. Now he wanted to make sure he kept the job. And so he writes a letter to the rulers, we're told, elders, those who were in charge of Ahab's sons, and he gives them a, a, a challenge slash dare slash taunt, right? That's kind of what we read here. He tells them, when you get this letter, I want you to choose a leader, a, a king, you know, from, from, from our master's house and set him on the throne of your father. Set him on the throne of your father's throne as soon as possible. Don't beat around the bush. Take care of it now. Notice how he tells them, you, you got fortified cities, you got horses, you got chariots, you got weapons. What's he saying there? What he's saying is that you got the advantage. You got the advantage. Let, let's do this. Let's fight. He's, he's asking for a fight. He's saying, let's, let's do this. Let's take care of business. Let's not wait six months down the line. Let's address it now. And it's just, it, interesting because, in, in a way, this can be seen kind of like psych, psychological warfare in a way. You know, some commentators think that what he was doing is he was intently telling them to do that, to, to bring fear into them. And that's exactly what happened, huh? Because look at verses 4 and 5. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, Look, two kings could not stand up to him. How then could we stand? Verse 5, And he who was in charge of the house, and he who was in charge of the city, and the elders also, and those who reared the sons sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants. We will do all you tell us, but we will not make anyone king. Do what is good in your sight. This guy, they said, this, this guy took two kings out. What, what chance do we have to defeat him? They, they were scared. They panicked, right? And we have to understand that, that Jehu was a commander. He was a commander of the army. He was a, he was a, a man of war. These other guys here, they're, they're, they're men of peace. They don't really, they're not, they're not men of war. And so when you got a, a guy who's a man of war writing you a letter saying, let's do this, let's fight, there's, there's some panic that sets in. And that's exactly what happened. They panicked, and because of their panic, um, they made promises that put them in a corner. And, and I think one of the applications, and we're going to be looking at applications for us because that's how we need to read the Bible. How does it apply to my life? Is that we need to remember that we're not to fear anyone, right? We're not to fear anyone but God. You know, if we fear in a situation, if we panic, then what's going to happen? More than likely, we're going to make choices that we're going to regret. We're going to later regret. And that's exactly what happened here. We, as Christians, need to trust God and fear Him only, right? That's what we're told in Matthew 10 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but not kill the soul, but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him with the capital H who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We're, the, we're, we're to only fear God. We're not to fear man because if we fear man, then we're going to be making choices. We're going to be running. We're not going to be able to, to stand. We're going to compromise in our walk. And that's one of the applications that, that, you, that you take away from this. The Bible tells us what? That, that God has not given us a spirit of fear. Right? He's not given us a spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. The, the rulers, the elders, and those who reared the, the sons, they, they went into a panic. And, and they responded to Jehu's letter by saying, whatever you want, Jehu, what, whatever you want. We won't anoint the king. We're going to do exactly as you say. And so Jehu, being a, a politician, had him in the palm of his hands, Right? 
He had them in the palms of his hands. Look what he wrote in verse 6. And he wrote a second letter to them saying, If you are for me and will obey my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. So, so Jehu is saying, you, you, you say I call the shots? You say I'm your master? Well, then prove it. Prove it. Bring me the heads of Ahab's sons. In verses 7 and 8, it says, So it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 persons, put their heads in baskets, and sent them to him at Jezreel. Then a messenger came and told them, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. So look what fear did here, okay? Fear caused them to open up their mouths and say something that they were going to regret later, that they didn't probably want to say. And fear caused them to commit murder. Jehu, he could simply say, and he did, that all he was doing was following orders, right? But, but they did it out of fear. And so that, that's a good application for us. Let us do, let's, let's not fear man. Let, it, let us only fear God. We're told here that, that they decapitated 70 sons of Ahab and they put their heads in baskets. And they sent them to Jehu and Jezreel. And when messengers came and told Jehu, he ordered them to pile them in two different piles right at the gate. If you know anything about Bible studies, usually the gate is where people did business, right? It's where the decisions were made. It was the hustle and bustle of the city. And so what was he doing here? He was trying to send a message. He was trying to message, send a message to everyone. I'm the man. Don't mess with me. You see these heads right here? Your head will roll if you cross me. He was trying to send a message. And that's something that back in the east was common. They would display the enemy's heads so that everyone can see that they needed to stay in line. But what it does show us is that now we're starting to see a pattern. We're starting to see a pattern from this man, Jehu, who, who never asked for the job. If you read uh, 2 Kings uh, chapter 9, he didn't ask for that job. He didn't even want it. But it was given to him. He took it. He ran with it. He ran with it with zeal. But now you're starting to see just a pattern. And it's not a good pattern. Proven by what he says next, right? Verses 9 and 11. So it was in the morning that he went out and stood and said to all the people, You are righteous. Indeed, I conspired against my master and killed him. But you, you killed all these. Now know that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he has spoke by his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests, until he left him none remaining. So Jehu, knowing that, that even though he technically didn't say decapitate them, put them in baskets, and bring them to me. He knew that, that he had them, right? Like I said earlier, in the palm of his hand. And so if he says, give me the heads, bring me the heads, that's exactly what they were going to do. But what he does is he says, look, I killed the king, but, but I'm not totally guilty here for you killed his sons. You know, so, so what he's using is, he, even though he technically ordered it to happen, now he's, he's, he's sharing some of the burden. He's, he's giving them some of the burden so that now they can be included and every, every, they can just say, we, this is all us. And then he uses God, right? He uses God and he says, everything out of the word that God says will happen. 
And so he kind of, he's starting to, to, to become a politician in a way. He's, he's really starting to act like a king. Um, he, he plays with words. I killed the king, but, but, but your hands aren't clean. You killed his sons. We're all in it together. And then notice what he says next in verse 10. Know that nothing that shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Habab, for the Lord has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah. So first he orders the heads chopped off. He acts surprised. And then he blames the people. And then he even kind of, in essence, kind of blames God, right? He says, this is is what God's doing. God did this. Yes, it's true. God did order you know, the, the cleansing of the house of, of Ahab, but, but now it's almost like he's starting to get bloodthirsty. It's almost like he's starting to get power hungry. And, and, and you have to be very, very careful. You know, the application here is be careful that we don't use God, but that God uses us, right? In verse 11, we're told that Jehu continued his killing spree by, by killing more of Ahab's household. He even extended it to his great men, it says, his friends and his priests. He was just, he was just killing people. Whoever Ahab spoke to on a corner, that guy was going to die. It didn't matter what. He was, he was going to clean house altogether. Look what it says in verses 12 through 14. This is Ahab killing uh, uh, 42 brothers. It says, And he arose and departed and went to Samaria on the way at Beth, Akkad, of the shepherds. Jehu met with the brothers of Isaiah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? So they answered, We are the brothers of, uh, of Isaiah. We've come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. And he said to them, take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the well of Beth Akkad, 42 men, and he left none of them. You see the pattern now? This guy is just, he's, he's starting to like it. He's starting to like the killing. He's starting to, to just, and he's going after everyone. We don't know if this is kind of being at the wrong place at the wrong time. It seems odd that that. You know, these, these, these leaders, you know, hadn't heard of what, what had happened. And, and it seems even more odd that they were all together at the same time. What, what people think is that what they were doing is they were coming to help. But when they saw Jehu, they, they kind of they, they panicked a little bit. And they said, oh, no, we're just going to visit. We're going to visit the king's sons. We're going to visit the king's, you know, the, the, the queen's sons, Jezebel. And, and, and he said the wrong thing, Right. Because look, we know what it says there, that he says, take them alive only to kill them by the well. Wrong thing to say, huh? We're going to visit the queen's sons. Because that connected them. And, and, and Jehu was going to take care of business. Verse 14, Jehu orders them taken alive only to have them killed um, by a well. And, and now technically, um, Ahazai, who was the king in chapter 9 that got killed by visiting um, the other king. Was a, he was a distant relative of, uh, of Ahab. Uh, but more than likely, I think Jehu was looking out for his own interests here. He was thinking, I'm the king now. I reign. I want to make sure that I continue to reign. And I'm going to take care of anyone that might uh, pose a threat to my kingdom. He was, he was starting to look out for his own, his own interests. And so he just systematically started getting rid of whoever could pose a threat to him all along using the prophecy of God, using really, in essence, um, God as an excuse. Now, don't get me wrong. Like I said, God did order the, the, the house cleaning. He did order this to happen, but the, the motives were starting to get blurry now. The lines were starting to get blurry, and we start seeing 
and Jehu's heart develop. We start seeing Jehu's heart. It's just a matter of time. People's heart will come out. Who they really are will come out. And that's what we're starting to see here. And so it says in verse 15, Now when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him, and he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right as my heart is towards your heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. And Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and he took him up into the chariot. Then he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride in his chariot, and when they came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. So not much is said here of, of this guy um, in Second Kings, Jehonadab, um, who Jehu met. But he must have been uh, an important man because in, in Jeremiah 35, God uses him uh, and the, and the Rechabites, who, who is kind of like the group that he founded, um, as an example, as an example of faithfulness and obedience to rebuke his people, to, to rebuke the disobedience of his people. Jeremiah records that, that Jehonadab was the leader of a, an aesthetic group that lived in, in an austere, nomadic life, meaning they lived in the desert, they didn't have homes, kind of like John the Baptist. You know, they didn't, they didn't have a home, they lived in tents, they weren't allowed to plant vineyards. They weren't allowed to drink wine. They, they, uh, they weren't allowed to own homes. And so they believed that living this lifestyle would make them holier. And so when Jehu met this guy, he says, you know what, I can score political points if, if they see me hanging out with this guy. You know, you know he'll, he's going to help me. That's kind of the way politicians look at people. Huh? They look at it as what they can do for me as opposed to what I can do, that seeing that they're servants, right? What I could do for them. And so Jehu was, was becoming a politician here. You know, he, he looked at this guy and he says, this guy can help me. And this guy was so zealous that, that once he found out that, that Jehu was cleaning house, cleaning, you know, a house with the, with the idolatry, he, he, he kind of partnered up with them. So when their past mess, Je, Je, Jehu saw him as a political friend, and he, and he took him with him. He says, come, come ride with me. He says, are you with me? Uh, Jehonadab said, sure. And then he says, then take my hand. Let's, let's take a ride together. And, and it's interesting that it says here, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Now you start really seeing this guy Jehu's heart develop. Now you really start seeing where he's at. Because now he's kind of like, he's, he's like snapping his collar in essence, right? He's, he's saying, come and see the zeal that I have for the Lord. Come and see how much I love God. That's, that's when you start getting into trouble. Because that's when you start saying that it's me. He says, come see my zeal for the Lord. Say what? What, what? what did you just say, Jehu? Someone pointed out that, that this, this, display, this display of him ref, ref, reforming zeal revealed how little he had for God's glory. It was more about him now than, than for God. He had started well, right? He didn't, he didn't want the job, like I said earlier. He was happy with just being the commander of the army of Israel. But when he was chosen, boy, did he use it up. Boy, did he take it. It seems at first that he was content with just simply serving in his position, but then he got a taste of power. And, you know, it was Abraham Lincoln who said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. 
That's what was happening here. He got a taste of power, and he liked it. And that's, that's exactly what was happening to Jehu. You know, with the drive that he had today, he would probably be elected president. You know, that's kind of the same drive that you saw in Obama, in, in Obama right? He had that drive, that zeal. This is what I want. He probably would be elected president. And as Manny said last week, man, it's too bad because he had such great potential. He had such great potential to serve the Lord, to do mighty things. And he did. But we're going to see in the end how he drifted from it. Uh, it was a guy named E. Judson that, that said about Jehu, he had the claws of a tiger, but they were muffled in velvet. And so verse 17 tells us that when Jehu and Jehonadab got to Samaria, um, that they continued the, the extermination of Ahab's household. Right? Notice it says, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. Someone once said, Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. So even though God is patient, even though God is long-suffering, he's faithful. He is faithful to say what he, what he said is going to be done will get done. Right? The Bible says in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so a lot of people think, well, I've been hearing kind of this, 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 this thing that God's going to bring judgment for such a long time. Well, you know, what? We, we, we better point them to what it says here in Second Peter, that, that God is not slack. You know, he wasn't slack with, with uh, Ahab. He wasn't slack with Jezreel. It took a long time. It took generations, but what he said was going to happen, happened. And that's kind of what's, what we see here. You know, God doesn't want to give us justice. He doesn't. He delights in, in giving us grace. He delights in showing mercy to us. But we have to be open to it. We have to want it. He's, you know, last night we were talking to a, a young man here, and we were telling him God is a perfect gentleman. He's not going to make you do anything that you don't want to do. He wants to extend grace and mercy to you, but you've got to receive it. And, and that's the truth here. Jehu was a tool. He was basically a tool, like, a, like a, a surgeon's scalpel, so to speak, that was used by God to bring justice to Ahab's a household, to bring justice to, to Jezebel and her wickedness. Why? Because they had rejected God's plea to repent. They had rejected it. In essence, they got, they got justice, right? They got justice. They, they wanted justice, and justice is what they got. I think, you know, as, as Christians, we got we to gotta make sure that we're always asking for God's mercy, that we're always asking for God's grace, that we never for a minute think, you know, it's not fair. You're not fair, God. Even when we go through those, those tribulations in life, because if we really want God's fairness, where would we get if we really want justice, if we want God to be fair with us, what is he going to give us? We're going to get his wrath because that's really what we deserve, right? What we should be asking for is grace, mercy, and then more grace and, and, and more mercy. God, God used Jehu here to deal with the evil found in the worship of, of Baal, and that's what we're going to read next, right? He, he deals with it. He's patient, but there, there, is, there comes a time where God says, that's it, and Look how he deals with Baal. He uses Jehu in verses 18 through 28. It says, And Jehu gathered 
all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live, but Jehu acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu said, Proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. Then Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. So they came into the temple of Baal, and the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. And he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So we brought out vestments for them. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, but only worshipers of Baal. So they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had appointed for himself 80 men on the outside and said, If any of the men whom I brought into your hands escapes, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the, for the life of the other. In verse 25, Now it happened as soon as he had made an end of the offering, the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, Go in and kill them. Let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. Then the guards and the officers threw them out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal. And they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. And they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuse dump to this day. Verse 28, thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. Obviously, those who practiced this, this sick idolatry um, thought that this coup was only politically motivated. They had no idea that, that Jehu was going to plan to wipe out Baal. They thought that, that he was only interested in politics. They thought that he was only interested in, in the kingdom. But they, they were fooled, right? They bought into the fact that Jehu was their friend, but he was deceiving them. And Jehu said, come, let's have a bail party, basically. You know, it's, it's an exclusive party. Only the members can come, right? In fact, he said, everyone needs to come or, or else they're going to die. I want everyone to be here for this. And in fact, we, we don't want any worshipers of Yahweh around. We don't want them around. It's only us. It's exclusive, VIP. So he says, just to be sure, let's, let's all get dressed up. Let's all put our, our, our vestments. Let's all put our robes so that we can make sure that it's only us in here. He's tricking them, right? Look at verse 22. And he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then as soon as the offering was made, bam, the order was given to kill them all. He, he even set up reinforcements. Sorry about that. He even set up reinforcements outside the, 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 the camp, right? And he said, in case one gets away, I want you to kill him. And if you don't kill him, guess what? Then you're going to die. You think they thought Jehu was kidding after all that he had done? No, they took him serious. Now, this is interesting, okay, because it says in verse 26, and they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. You guys remember when Elijah dealt with the with the priest of Baal? He he did this whole thing where you know he lit a fire, right? And he and he says, "You pray that the rain would come. I'll pray that the rain would come." Because Baal was known as the god of rain. He was known 
for a lot of things, but he was also known for the God of rain. And I just thought it was interesting here that, that, that if Bill was the God of rain, why didn't he quench the fire? Why didn't he, why didn't he, he, he stop what was going on? If this was his house, if he was this powerful deity, why didn't he step in and make sure that his house was safe? Because he wasn't, right? Because he wasn't a deity. There is only one God. This, this was idolatry. It was, it was camouflaged by the devil to be a God. And, and when God tells the devil it's time to pack it up, it's, it's time to pack it up. And that's what was happening here. And instead of Baal coming to the rescue, we read that his temple was made of refuse. You know what that means? That means a toilet. That's what that means. That, that temple, which they say was beautiful and huge, was made of toilet. That when God was ready, he was going to take care of business. It says that even to this day, even to the day that it was written, that house was used as a refuse. So the, the, the worship of Baal, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, was nothing more than evil idolatry. Baal is a sick, sick um, religion. God didn't really technically order Jehu to destroy it, but we know that through the law, he, he, he says that, that we shouldn't involve ourselves, that the, that the Jews shouldn't involve themselves, and that they were to destroy it from amongst them. And so he, in essence, did tell them. And, and, and this, this religion, you want to call it that, was sick. I was reading that in the bigger festivals, what they did is they would, they would burn human sacrifices, and then they would eat them. They would burn kids. They would burn babies because he was also the God of fertility. And so they figured, we, you know, if we offer our kids to them, he'll bring us more. He was also known as the God of as, as, you know, fertility, so they would have orgies to try to stimulate him. It was a sick, sick religion. And so God, he was done with it. He was done with it. He wanted it taken out, and he used Jehu um, to do it. And it's interesting that he used Jehu, right? Because, you know, this guy, Jehu, had great executive ability. Jehu, uh, you know, was, was a fast driver. Remember, he rode horses fast. He was impetuous, he, but not reckless. He, he, having a, a purpose, he rushed to, to, to his realization. He took hold of it. You know, he, was, he, was a, a, he had the gift of administration, so to speak. Someone that has the gift of administration is someone that can carry out an order. Someone that can see it to the end. That's who Jehu was. But... Man, that power, that, that hunger just, just got to him. He was ready enough to obey God so long as the divine command fell in with his own ambitious and bloodthirsty passions. He was ready to call out and destroy others for their sins, but he forgot to deal with his own, right? Which is what we read next. Look at verses 29 through 31. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, and that is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight, and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And then verse 31 says, But Jehu again took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. So our next application here is do not be so ready to tear down someone for what you yourself struggle with. A lot of times as Christians, man, we are ready to point out people's sins and we're struggling with the same thing. I'm guilty of that. 
You know, sometimes I tell my wife, my wife is going to kill me because she says, don't say my name. But, you know, I tell my wife, don't do that. You can't, you know, you can't do that. And I, ca- I catch myself, man, I struggle with the same thing. When I need to tell my wife is, look, I struggle with the same thing. Who am I to fool her, right? She knows me better than anyone. Let's pray together. You know, this is the flesh. Let's, let's, let's pray about this. Let's, let's do something about it. But I got to include myself. Too many times as Christians, we don't do that. We, you know, we, we have 20-20 vision when it comes to other Christian sins. But for our own sins, we need bifocals, right? All of a sudden, we can't see them. And, and this is that application here that we take. You know, Jehu was out there, man, taking care of business. You know, running up a storm, killing people, killing Baal, you know, destroying it. But then, you know, when it came to him, he wasn't ready to, to take care of his own sin. Jesus in Matthew 7, 3 to 5, he, he says straight out, right? He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eyes, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove that speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? He says, hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's true. The, the, the calves here, the calves, if you remember, in 1 Kings um, when, the, when, when both the, 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 the Israel parted, right, and the tribes parted, um, this guy Jeroboam, he, he got scared. He says, if they go back into you know, them, they're going to start worshiping God and they're going to stay there. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a temple here. I'm going to set up the calves, right, which is what Aaron did, right? And we're going to call this Jehovah. We're going we're to say that we're worshiping Jehovah, but we're going to use the calves as the image. And so, you know, I was thinking, you know, I wonder if we do that. I wonder if we do that. You know, a lot of us, because of our, of our backgrounds, we come from, from religious backgrounds, you know, especially being Hispanic. You know what I'm talking about. And I, and I wonder, you know, that when issues come up, that we don't want to offend people. We don't want to offend and we don't say anything. You know, we say, oh, leave them alone, you know. They, they, they believe in the same God that we believe in. You know, what, what harm are, are, are they doing? You know, it's okay if they bow down to this. Really? I mean, another application that we need to take away from here is that we need to stand for the truth. We need to stand for the truth in love, but we need to stand for the truth. I mean, it would be wrong, right, but for the sake of love to tell somebody that, you know, they, they were going to they, they were gonna drive off a cliff if we saw them driving off the cliff. It'd be wrong for us to do that. It wouldn't be loving. And so we need to stand for the truth, no matter if it offends, because compromise is going to have its consequences. And that's what happened with Jehu. I mean, he was rewarded by God. God said in verse 30, because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done you know, to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. So God is so good. He's going to reward for what you do good, but he's also going to say, you know what? You're going to have consequences for sin. And, and, and he did, you know, he did have consequences. Look what we read in verses 32 to 34. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. And Hazel, king of Samaria, conquered them in all the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastward and all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, from Arior, which is by the river Arnon, including Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Jehu rested with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. 
that Joahaz, his son, reigned in his place in the period that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. It, it was John Owen who said, prevent sin from negotiating with your soul. F.B. Meyer said, we may keep other people's vineyards and neglect our own. We may give good advice to our friends but fall into the very faults against which we warn them. We may pose an infallible guide but we fall into the crevices and precipice from which we had carefully warned our companions. We need to be careful that we don't do that. And one way is to say, hey, I'm right, with, I'm right there with you. I'm struggling with the same things. You know, I, I share with them, be transparent, and then pray with them. Don't be like Jehu, who forgot, right? He forgot. He was out there taking care of business, and, and he had in his own backyard sin. He did just that. He could have left a legacy. Jehu could have left an amazing legacy, but instead his life ends with, but Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord, God of Israel, with all his heart. Can you imagine, guys, if that's like your legacy? If, if they see, you know, that, that individual, Henry, he was a brother in Christ. He was a Christian, but he only had like 70%. That was his walk. Or, you know, that sister, she, she, she used to go to Calvary Chapel Almani, but it was only 50%. That's all that she, she gave. That's sad. I mean, don't you want to be remembered as someone that says they gave their whole heart to the Lord? It was their whole heart. And it says here that Jehu, he, he, didn't, he didn't walk with God with all his heart. I think we need to ask God for the strength that our name wouldn't be there in Jehu's place. We need to keep short accounts with God because we, we mess up every day. We fall short every day. But if we keep those short, short accounts with God, if we're right there saying, God, forgive me for that one, help me, give me the strength, then we can go on. And, and like Pastor Manny says, you know, we're never going to be sinless, but as we walk, as we, as we abide you know, in God, in Jesus, as we're reading, as we're praying, then we're going to sin less and less and less. And that's our goal, right? Not because we want to be that holier. And in essence, we do. But because we want to glorify God, not glorify ourselves. Jehu, he started off right. But in the end, it was about him. And in the end, he was so busy taking care of other people's business that he forgot his own. And, and you know, we need to start with us. It starts here. And then, and then, then I'll be able to help my brother. And then I'll be able to help my sister. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? You're never going to be perfect. And so you can't say, well, I'm not going to share this with my brother until I've taken care of my sin because you're never going to share. But again, what you do it is you do it in a transparent way. You do it in a way where it's like, man, bro, I messed up here. I'm having issues with anger. I'm having issues with pride. Let's pray together. Let's pray for each other. Let's hold each other accountable. That's how we're to do it. Jehu didn't do that. You know, he, he lost sight that he had sin in his backyard. Amen? We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.